this morning when I was doing the dedications, you probably noticed that I was sweating. Since you've already been in it, let me get you in more in some of my life. I am an introverted person. And you're like, no, no, he's not. I am. I am a professional extrovert. But I am an introverted person. And if you probably see me when I preach that I move around, I don't speak behind a pulpit. I move around. Because that makes me comfortable. That makes me feel at ease. But when I'm standing, especially when I do weddings, when I'm standing in front of people two feet away from me and I cannot move, my body tells me that something is wrong. So my body begins to tell me with a drop running down my back that I need to move. But my mind is telling me, you can't. So things begin to happen that make me uncomfortable. All of us have something that makes us uncomfortable. Some of us experience things that makes us uncomfortable when we see something suffering in society. When we see a disgrace, uh, uh, injustice, when we see somebody who is in pain, we get uncomfortable. At least that happens to some of us. But the reality in this world is that there will always be something or someone who will make us uncomfortable. We're in this series that we title Worthy. And as we go into the message of today, I want to show you a picture. And let's see if you identify who this man is. Anybody? Okay, I'll help you. And he said, he said, if one person dies, it's a tragedy. But one million is just a statistic. And by the name, you know already who this person is. Because under his rule, millions of people suffered. Unfortunately, unfortunately, because of sin and what we've been exposed to, on TV and in the world, we've accepted that people's suffering is just a statistic. Unless it's really close to home. And even then, we don't feel uncomfortable anymore. If you open your notes today, we go to the description of what Jesus calls the sixth seal in Revelation. We've been talking about the seals in Revelation, and today we go to number six. I mean, I'm sorry, number five. I told you I was an introvert. That's nothing to do with anything. The fifth seal, family, the fifth seal is an assurance that Jesus gives us that at one point in life, at one point in time, suffering will end. It's an assurance that Jesus gives that the abused will be vindicated. And it's also an assurance that evil will receive the punishment deserved. So let's go to open this seal. Because it is also an assurance that no one, no one is just a statistic. Revelation 6 verse 9, it's in your notes, it says, When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Now the first question that comes to us, because this is a descriptive scene. 
This is not a, 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 a child-friendly story. Because it's talking about people being killed. And it says here that there's souls under the altar. But to truly understand what Revelation is telling us in this passage, we need to define a couple of terms. And the first term is, what is a soul? So let's get a little bit into theology. Now, there's a tradition. A what? Tradition, tradition because this isn't biblical. This, there's a tradition that says that a life is composed of three things. This tradition is called as a trichotomy. And these three things are the spirit of God, the body, and the soul. And according to that tradition, that forms a life. But let's put away tradition and let's see what the Bible says. And the Bible says in, in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7, and, and this is a description of when man was created. It says, and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground. Which, which part of the body is that? Which, I already told you the answer. Which part is that? The body. Just chicken if you're awake. And, and, and breath into his nostrils, the breath of life. What part is that? The spirit. And man became a living soul. So instead of being three things, a soul is only formed when there is the union of the body and the spirit of God. That's what the Bible teaches. So a soul is the union of the body and the breath of God. So the absence of any of these two elements makes no longer a living soul. Are you with me? That's what the Bible teaches. So one of the things that we understand here is that there is these people under the altar that are crying. Now, the euro confused. Let's keep reading. The altar. The most difficult question about this text is what altar are we talking about? In the century that was describing the Old Testament, they were two altars. One, the big altar on the outside, that was the altar of the burnt offering. When the animals were sacrificed, they were placed on this altar and their flesh was burned. And that was the sacrifice for sin. That was a, a, a task that was performed in the morning and in the afternoon every single day. Now, the other altar was not in the atrium. This other altar was in the inside. And there you see a number four. You see the number four? That is the altar of incense. On this altar, no sacrifices were performed. In fact, it was only incense that was burned in the holy place. Now, this is where identifying which altar we're talking about is so important. Because if it happened to be that the altar that is mentioned here in Revelation 6 is the altar of incense, that means that these souls are in heaven. Because in Revelation, the altar of incense is in heaven. But if the altar of the sacrifice is where the souls are 
under, that means that these souls, these souls are on earth. So let's see what the Bible tells us. And as we've been finding out, the context of Revelation is found in the Old Testament. Remember that? We've been doing this every week. In Exodus chapter 29, and let me show you the text. Verse 12 says, And shall take part of the blood of the bull, put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and the rest of the blood you shall pour out at the base of the altar. What altar do you think is talking about here? The burnt offering, the altar of the sacrifice. Now, the same language appears in Revelation about pouring of the blood. Revelation 16, 6. There you go. Oops. Too far. There you go. Revelation 16, 6. For they have shed the blood. You see that? For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. Now, that's pretty gory, but it's the same language that he used in Exodus. And it's the same language to describe that the altar that these souls are under is the altar of the sacrifice. So, in other words, these souls that are crying out, these souls that are calling upon God, these suffering people are not in heaven, as described in Revelation, they are on earth. So now, why is that important? It says that they had been slain because of the word of God and their testimony. Now, these people, we have a term for them. Martyrs, that's right, martyrs. Now, the word martyr is very interesting because we understand the word martyr as somebody who has been killed for, by, because of a cause, correct? But see, it's very interesting because in the Greek, the word for testimony or testify is the word martureo. So somebody who's giving a testimony, somebody who's representing something, it's a martyr. So when he's talking about the life that they lived, it's using the same term. That they live for a cause. So in this, in this sense, these souls are not willing to die just for something. They live for something. Are you with me? So a true martyr not only dies for a cause, lives for a cause. Now that you're awake, we have to understand the truth of this seal. And the truth of this seal, the message of this seal, is that one day we'll bite one that works. That Jesus cares for the suffering. Jesus cares for the suffering. Now, this truth about Jesus caring for the suffering family is not a new thing. Jesus has always cared for the suffering. God has always cared for the suffering, including or starring at the beginning with the first one. Who was the first suffering? Abel. Abel in the Old Testament, the New Testament, in the Old Testament is Abel. You remember that Adam and Eve had two kids, two boys. One was Cain and the other one was Abel. Now, uh, we could spend hours talking about that story because he has so much meaning. But we'll just spend the time at the end. 
both of them offered a sacrifice, and the sacrifice that Abel presented before God was a sacrifice that God had asked. The way the sacrifice had been done by Adam through, through their life, and now that they're adults, they're offering this sacrifice because now they have families, now they're heads of household, they're offering sacrifices, but the sacrifice that Abel offered was just like his father's Adam's sacrifice, but now Cain offers a sacrifice that was good according to his own eyes. So God said, I accept Abel's sacrifice. But Cain, your sacrifice was not what I asked. And the Bible says that Cain got so mad that hated his brother. And he hated him so much that he killed him. But he, has, he was such a coward that he didn't, co- he didn't say, hey, I admit it, I kill it. He hid his sin from his family but he couldn't hide it from God. So God comes to, to Cain and says, Cain, where's your brother? You know, it was like, God wasn't going to be like, oh, really? That's where he is? I didn't know that. No. God knew exactly what had happened. But he gave Cain the chance to come clean. But guess what? God does that same thing to us. When we sin, God comes to us, giving us the opportunity to come clean. But Cain said, I don't know, am I a babysitter for my brother? That's in the new Pakini Standard Version. And what happened was that Cain had already killed him, and and God told these words to Cain. Genesis 4.10 is right there in your notes. The Lord said, What have you done? You see, God asked a question. And that is exactly the same way that God approaches us. With a question. Because God always wants us to communicate with him. The same way that he asked his father, Adam, when he had sinned and committed uh, or ate from from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Where are you? Always God gives us a chance with a question to communicate with him. And then he says, listen. Obviously he didn't speak, right? Listen, God says, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. The same way that these saints are crying out from under the altar. So God, from the beginning, has cared for the suffering. God has always listened to those who have been treated unfairly. God has always listened to those who have been in pain caused not by themselves. Those who have been abused and neglected. God has always heard. And as his children, we have to learn the practice to listen to those who suffer as well. Because that is the way God wants his family to be. Abel's blood is a microcosm of the Christian life. Because there's always going to be someone who is going to be unjustly treated. Somebody who is going to be unfairly treated. 
somebody who is going to die unjustly. And how we react to that event dictates on which, si which side of the spectrum we are. And Revelation 20 verse 4 says, I saw thrones on which were seated those who had been given authority to judge. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of the testimony. See the word testimony here? Martyreo. About Jesus and because of the word of God. They had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ a thousand years. So this is what God is telling us here. That he cares so much for the suffering that even though they might unjustly and, and unfairly die and suffer for their beliefs and their relationship with God and their fair relationship with him. That there's going to be a time that even though they have suffered, they're going to be vindicated. And they're going to be placed in a, in a place that higher than what they ever thought they were going to be. So God is not blind for the reality of suffering in our world. In fact, God wants in us to develop the same feeling for people. So how do we feel about the people suffering around us is a description of our relationship with God. See, Jesus' character reflected in us and on his people and the way that we react to those suffering around us. So let me preach to you for a second. Your relationship with God is not based on how many Bible texts you know. It's not based on how you dress. Your relationship with God is not reflected on your diet. Your relationship with God is reflected on how we treat other people, especially the suffering around us. And like I said before, we need to know the word of God to understand his purpose. So reading and knowing the scripture and understanding is important. It's essential. It's a non-negotiable. Having modesty in our dress is important. Having a healthy diet is super important. But they're not signs of a spiritual growth. They're signs of forgiveness. They're signs that I have understood that there's a God that loves me with my imperfections. So I'm going to try to live the best way I can for him. But the way we treat others has always been the mark of those who believe and have a relationship with God. We see it in the church of the first century. And this is something that I, 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 I've, hear, I've heard many times. Pastor, how come the miracles that the disciples were making before are not happening today? We believe in the same Jesus, right? The problem is that we don't care for the people the same way they cared before. They care so much for them that when they, somebody had a need, they prayed for that need to be satisfied, that God said, you care so much that you could not live anymore. So I'm going to grant this miracle. The time has come when we have to start caring for the suffering just as much as the people in the first century did. So we come to a point of a question. And the question is, is there a limit for suffering? Is there a limit for suffering? Revelation 6.10 says, they called out in a loud voice, how long, sovereign Lord? You see, they want this to end, right? How long? Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and 
avenge our blood. So the question of the suffering has always been, how long will there be injustice? How long will there be unfairness? How long will there be suffering? Now, it's interesting that now in this text appears a contrast, a contrast between those who are suffering and those who make the suffering to others or make the other suffering. And they're called the inhabitants of the earth. That is a signal that points to the final destination. Because those who suffer as martyrs, those who live for God, those who have a relationship with God, their final destination will be not earth, but heaven. But those who don't have that relationship, their final destination will be earth the inhabitants of the earth. There are two groups here. The persecuted and those causing the persecution. In fact, the psalmist put it in this way, in Psalm 79, 5 and 6. How long, Lord? Same question, right? How long, Lord? Will you be angry forever? How long will your jealousy burn like fire? Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that do not call on your name. Why should the nations say, where is their God? Before our eyes, make known among the nations that you avenge the outpoured blood of your servants. You see that in the time of when the songs were written in the Old Testament, the same situation occurred. There were people who were suffering because they were faithful to God. And there were those who attacked them because they believed in God. And the need to be vindicated, the need to be avenged, the need to be restored had always been at the forefront. How long? How long? We, we have a saying in our day that when it rains, it pours. And if you look out the window... It's a practical reminder. And that happens in our lives. You know, it, it was so interesting. And you know their story, our story. At the beginning of the year, we had a surgery schedule. And then my other boy had a surgery the next Friday. So my wife and I were thinking, okay, what's next? Who's going to have another surgery? Or who's the next one in line? We were kidding with the, with the nurse at the, at the OR because she said, hey, you guys should get frequent miles. Because that's the reality of life. When something bad happens, oftentimes open the door for an, opens the door for another thing to happen. So that same question, how long? Until when? What's next? It's always in the forefront. But there is one thing clear. That in the New Testament text and in the Old Testament text, God is the one that avenges the suffering. God is the one that ends suffering. God is the one that puts his foot firm and stops the progress of suffering because he is the one in control. So now, when G if Jesus cares for the suffering, why do we have it? Why doesn't he just stop it? And I was actually thinking about not talking about this and leave it for the questions, but nobody has answered, asked this question yet, so I'm going to talk about it right now. I believe that 
the evidence that we find in the Bible about suffering has always appeared as a consequence of sin. If it's suffering caused by ourselves, it's because we didn't follow certain rules of health, of social behavior, legal issues. But if it's suffering caused by others upon ourselves, it's because that person didn't obey those laws. So at the end of the day, sin has always been a consequence. I'm sorry, suffering has always been a consequence of sin. So now, if God would stop it, and right now God would say, okay, and, and March, it's already March, my goodness, March 2nd, 2019, from now on, I declare universal no suffering time. What would happen from now on? We'll be so comfortable that we would not have a need to seek God. We'll be so comfortable that we will continue to sin because there's no consequences. We'll be so comfortable that our lives would not matter in eternity because today it doesn't matter what I do. There's no suffering. So in order for God to create in us, to, for God to create in us a need for a relationship with Him, He allows some suffering. Not all, because the truth is that we haven't paid for all our sins. Let me explain this to you in case you say, well, no, I have paid for all my sins. No. The Bible says that the wages of sin is and you're pretty much breathing right now. So that means that we have not paid for all our sins. So that means that God allows some suffering to happen so that in our hearts, the void that we have that God can only fill will remain present. And our longing for a relationship with Him and for an eternal life without pain will remain. What Jesus is talking about here, the message that God is presenting, us, presenting before us, is that he cares for the suffering and the persecuted because one day he will vindicate from injustice. Because one day he will avenge their suffering and one day he will reward for eternity. See, the martyr's plea in the fifth seal is like this. It is a plea of God's suffering people. They're under the altar. They're crying until when. It is a plea of God's suffering people through history from Abel, the first one, to the last one that lives right before Jesus comes. It's a representation that one day God will avenge the suffering of every single one who has lived for Jesus, regardless of time. So with the question, there is a promise. And the promise is that there will be a new identity. Verse 11 of chapter 6 of Revelation says, Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been. 
So they were told to wait a little longer. This is, family, and let me warn you, this is the most difficult text in the book of Revelation. For one simple reason, the word number. Because the word number does not appear in the original text. Now, let me geek out a little bit with you, okay? Can I? I'll show you something. Now, this, this is where I do my Bible studies. You see on the top is the literal translation of the text. And you can see on the top, blood on those who dwell on the earth, right? You see that? And underneath every word, there is some kind of a scribble, like chicken scratch. That's Greek. That's Greek. Now, and you see those Greek words under every word except on the word number. You see on the second line? They're arrows. And I went to the other version. You see the number has no Greek word. Because in the original text, the word number is absent. Does not appear. So we have a problem. Because we understand that there has to be a number of redeemed to be completed, right? You heard that before. But we have a problem because the Greek does not have the word number in the text. But the word complete is an affirmative. In other words, it's a word that says this will happen until this. So the emphatic complete is present. So the question that arrives to us is what does it have to be complete? Because it is a number. Because number is not there. The Bible offers several options. One of those options is that these saints, these souls, have a task that needs to be completed. So until they complete it, then. That's one option. Another option is that there has to be a time that they have to be around, and until the time is completed, then. Another option that the Bible presents is that they have a purpose. And as that purpose is completed, then. But there's another option. And that is within the context of, the, of Revelation 6. Until their character is completed. Until their character is completed. Now, I want you to see something. That why would they, what would these saints be wearing? White robes. Now, see, we have a problem here because when... People who haven't studied this text have come up with is that, well, in order for this character to be completed, we need to be perfect for God to come. But Houston, West Covina, we have a problem. Because none of us will be perfect. In fact, the, in fact, the Apostle Paul understood this reality about imperfection that he said, the one who started the working as we completed. And then he added when? On the day of his coming. So that means that even when Jesus comes, 
We will not be perfect because the work of completion will be realized when Jesus comes. And then he says, because we will see him as he is and we will be as he is. So until Jesus is not here, our perfection will not be attained. But also Paul is referring to something else. That that perfection on the day when Jesus comes will become a reality is because our imperfect life, our imperfect character will be covered with this white robe of righteousness. So it isn't my perfection that needs to be completed. It's the perfection of Christ placed upon me. That means that suffering will end when Jesus returns. Because that is the time where the righteousness of Christ will be placed upon each of those who have lived for him. Revelation 3, 4, and 5, says in your note, says, Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. Again, it's making a reference to both groups. Those who live for Christ and those who don't. They will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. Does that sound familiar? The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. And we come to another point. The book of life. In heaven, there are books. Yeah, there's books. There's no Kindles, there's no iPads, there's books. And this is what happens. In heaven, these books have a purpose. One of those books, as read in this text, is called the book of life. In another text, in making reference to that book, is called the book of the Lamb. But there's also another book. And this book... We understand it as the book of memories. Not because of its title, but because what is contained in it. See, the book of memories has every single thought, every word, every action that every single one of us have made. In Matthew, we find the words of Jesus that say every idle thought, every idle word will come into account on the day of judgment. That's what Matthew says. So all those thoughts, all those words, all those actions that we've ever committed are recorded in that book, in the book of memories. But in the book of life, in the book of the Lamb, there are no thoughts, there are no actions, there are no words written. Only names. Let me explain. Once a sinner acknowledged Jesus as the Savior and begins to live for God as Jesus died for him, his thoughts, his words, his actions are thrown into the depths of the sea. This is Bible. This is not in my version. This is Bible. And his name is written in the book of life, in the book of the Lamb. 
that is incredibly promising. Because see, that tells us that I will never be able to save myself by my actions. Only by the blood of the Lamb. Now let me explain it to you like this. You know the difference between a passport and a boarding pass. Anyone who is national of any country is issued by that country a passport. That passport has their name, their place of birth, their height, their weight, and all the identification items that could be recorded in a magnetic strip. The cross is our passport. Because on the cross, we were all bought by the blood of God to be one day citizens of heaven. But if I go to the airport with my passport and I said, look, I am an American citizen and I want to fly to London. The first thing they would tell me is, where is your boarding pass? But wait, I have a passport. I am a citizen. Sir, you don't understand. You might be a citizen of this country. You have a passport that is valid, but you need a boarding pass. A boarding pass that you had bought a ticket a while ago, make a reservation and prepare yourself for that trip. So that today, on the date of the flight, you have your boarding pass, boarding pass ready. The passport is a cross because we all have the opportunity to become citizens of heaven. But our life as it changes by the blood of Christ and as our relationship with Christ is developed, then we acquire the boarding pass. And one day when we are covered completely with the grace of God upon His second coming, we'll have in our hands that boarding pass that will allow us to travel to our heavenly home. So if there's anything that the fifth seal is telling us today is that it's not enough just to call ourselves Christian. But we have to live like one. It's not enough to have the passport. We need the boarding pass. And it is my prayer that today We understand the value of the death of Christ in such a way that just with the passion as He died for us, we could live for Him. And when we encounter suffering, we can become His instruments to soothe them.